Welcome to the GC Podcast, a podcast to help you develop into the healthiest ministry leader you can be by sharing practical ministry experience. Here's your host, Kara Garrity. Hello, friends, and welcome to today's episode of GC Podcast. This podcast is devoted to exploring best ministry practices in the context of Grace Communion International Churches. I'm your host, Kara Garrity, and I am pleased today to have guest John Rittner with us. John Rittner has been a pastor for 20 years across different contexts. He is the author of Positively Irritating, Embracing a Post-Christian World to Form a More Faithful and Innovative Church. And today he works with pastors and denominations all over to help them imagine and discern their innovation journey as they adapt to a post-Christian world in their own context. So John, thank you so much for joining us here today on the GC Podcast. We're happy to have you. Thank you so much, Kara. It's a joy to be here. And, and I think when I titled my book, Positively Irritating, it was your energy and voice that I imagined saying it out loud. That was really fun to hear you <laughs> read that title. Oh, well, good. <laughs> you can you can take it. I won't copyright it. I won't copyright it. <laughs> well, you know, John, Positively Irritating, I, I've, I've read your book and it offers a lot of great insights for our leaders and um, ministry leaders and, and pastors in GCI as we grow in our vision towards healthy church that we have across the denomination. And so I'd love for us to explore that uh, a, a little bit in this episode. But first, could you share with us a little bit about about um, what were your experiences that led you to write this book in the first place? Yeah, um, you know, my, my journey um, over the last 20 years has kind of brought me in, in many different diverse contexts. I mean, I spent 10 years working in the American South as a pastor at a megachurch that was, you know, in the process of growing from kind of five, 600 up to 3,000 and building the big $16 million building and hiring the staff of 60 and you know, everything kind of living the American megachurch dream where uh, mm. you just kind of felt like every year we were increasing and, and up and to the right and total success story in a smaller town of Williamsburg, Virginia. And yet at the same time, beginning to kind of have a little bit of a fracture in my own soul that maybe we weren't actually being as effective at making disciples as I thought we were. Maybe we were just kind of collecting mm. existing disciples from within the community and, and maybe even kind of like just sheep shifting around from people who are at other churches into our church because we offered better programs. Um, and also realizing that there was something kind of a, a temptation in me to want to be in that spotlight. I want to be on that platform more and more to kind of receive the, the praise and adulation of 3000 people that I realized was kind of unhealthy. And, and I began to see more and more leaders around the country who were actually failing and being disqualified for you know, sin in their life that was a result of, I think, a lot of that temptation. And so I began to just kind of ask Jesus again, like, God, this is not necessarily what I wanted. And I'm not even sure this is what you really wanted. Uh, Is there a better way? And and as a gift to me in the midst of all that, uh, we received kind of a call to go join some friends in Brussels, Belgium, uh, in the, the, the capital of Europe, uh, to help them uh, work with uh, as a nonprofit, an organization called Serve the City, working with homeless and refugee and asylum seekers, but then also helping plant small micro churches around the capital mm-hmm. city there, uh, localized expressions of mission and community and worship that were about 25 to 30 and really led by everyday ordinary people, uh, not by trained professional pastors. And and the, the part of the education of that was really learning about the secular post-Christian landscape of Europe 
uh, and beginning to identify that this is actually what's coming in America. I can see kind of all the seeds of that being planted uh, and thinking we may not have all the fruits of it yet, but it's taken root and it won't be long before this culture kind of washes across most of America. And the church in Europe is radically different because of the mm. way they've had to adapt and to innovate to this new culture. So for me, it was a, an experimental time of, of learning what other European leaders were doing, of trying some things, and then really ultimately kind of repenting of some existing church paradigms that I thought were mm. biblical, that I realized were really just uh, cultural and contextual to, to, yes. to America in the last 50 years. And so we spent three years there kind of unpacking and unraveling all of that and, and building some new practices and then eventually felt a call to come back to the States and help other churches on this journey. And so I just recently finished a, a seven-year uh, call at a church out here in Hollywood, helping them kind of remission and, and reshape their existing forms of church. Uh, that'll be more robust uh, for, for this post-Christian climate that we, we're finding out here in Hollywood. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's that's excellent. And sounds like quite a journey that God has yeah. led you on. And so you mentioned that that part of this has been um, learning and growing in in post Christian context. So can you explain for our audience a little bit what you mean by a, a post Christian context? Sure, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Culture is you know it's the proverbial fish in water, right? A fish doesn't know that they're wet. Mm -hmm. So if you've been in the culture of Christendom your entire life. You don't think of it as being a unique culture. Um, but the best way to, to think about the post-Christian culture that's coming is to actually try to connect it to the pre-Christian culture that we see in the book of Acts. So mm -hmm. if you look back in the, the scripture and you see the way the church is being formed, uh, it's a, a culture where Christianity, the modern movement, I'm sorry, the initial movement of Christianity had no power. They had no, no privilege, no, no property or finances, right? Uh, they were very much on the margins. They were a, a persecuted people group. It's a lot of kind of underground house churches being expressed in small spaces. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, you know, by the time you get to Nero um, in, you know, the second and third centuries, you've got massive uh, persecution underway where Christians are basically fearing for their own lives. And yet continuing to grow and thrive and the church is continuing to uh, be healthy and adapt to that mm. culture. Um, and so there's no professionalization of ministry, right? Paul's taking up offerings as he moves around as an itinerant apostle, but uh, Paul hasn't gone to a formal seminary to train Christian pastors. He's called together things from, you know, Jewish leaders, uh, Gamaliel and others. Um, but uh, it's, it's really, it's a picture of the, the church on the fringes of society. Then we come into Constantine, who has this vision and ends up kind of formalizing Christianity as the state religion of Rome. And ever since then, uh, the, the center of the Western worldview has really been uh, the values, the ethics, the, the narrative of Christianity. And so we may still think in terms of, you know, the world being um, in America, maybe challenged by Christian ethics and, and being against that. But so much of who we are, love, grace, kindness, truth, it's all rooted in the Christian story. And so post-Christianity is the culture that has emerged in Europe as the existing uh, expressions of church got marginalized. They were seen as no longer being valid, no longer being uh, sources of truth, 
they were seen as no longer being good news for culture. And so uh, they've been pushed back to the margins. And so if you connect with Christians in, in Europe, they are a massive minority. Uh, the culture around them often feels like when it comes to Christianity, we've been there and we've done that and we have the cathedrals to prove it. Right. And we're not going back. Uh, we've upgraded. Sometimes I, I say post-Christianity is is almost like a culture that has upgraded its worldview mm -hmm. from its old model. Right. Every yeah. 18 months or so, most of us go into a store and we think about upgrading our phone. Right. It's a, a phone that worked for us for a while and had features that fit us for a while. But now that there's something better, the old has become passe and we want to get rid of it and upgrade. And so in many ways, Europe views themselves as having upgraded to a better worldview, one that is not reliant on God at the center. And they've created a worldview where you can actually find human significance with mm -hmm. meaning I, you can answer the questions of identity and belonging and purpose, the deep existential issues. You can answer all of that without having to have God at the center of it. So you can have mm -hmm. significance without transcendence. And that is a radical shift from the last 2000 years where Western culture and honestly, every culture around the world has always rooted the answer to those deep questions, either in God or God's somewhere in the heavens that we received mm. meaning. We didn't make meaning. Uh, but in post-Christianity, you're on your own to make your own meaning, to, to make a life that has value um, and to flourish as a human on your own. And so it's a, it, it sounds a little uh, kind of ethereal and what would that actually feel like? But when you're in a culture like that for three years, the expression of it and the way it impacts the church is very significant. Uh, there are churches over there that, um, you know, struggle to have any sort of finances. They don't really have any properties. Uh, they, they exist on the margins and they're trying to reimagine what does it look like when the flow of culture is not into a church space on a Sunday morning, you know, mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of away from churches. I'll give you just one last example there to kind of yeah, uh, co concretize this. But, you know, I remember um, the, the traditional liturgies of marriage and death in an American culture both take place in churches predominantly. When you want to get married, even if you're, you know, not necessarily a follower of Jesus, you traditionally think about doing it in a sacred space like a church. Um, when someone dies and you want to uh, honor and celebrate that life and, and maybe even think about a connection to the afterlife, those services are often held in the sacred space of a church. In Europe, it, I saw over and over again that those two liturgies were never held in churches. In fact, in the city of Brussels, you can't get married in a church. It's a state institution. You have to go down to the town hall and have the local magistrate perform your wedding. Now, you can have any sort of ceremony after that. They don't care about that. But you have to do it in a, in a civil space, right? And then most funerals are, are held in gardens, parks, town halls. I had a friend who went to a funeral one time and, and I said, uh, tell me more about this. It was held in like the, the local uh, civic center, the local town hall. And I said, was there a priest who moderated it? And he just laughed at me. He said, oh, no, no. They had an MC. Mm. And I was like, like a, like a MC for a wedding, like a DJ. He's like, yeah, yeah. Just a guy with a microphone and a speaker who MC'd it. And I thought, mm. oh my gosh, they, they took this this liturgy that we think of as being a sacred, mm -hmm. spiritual, religious liturgy, and they just extracted anything spiritual from it. 
and turned yeah. it into a total secular experience. Um, and, and that really is what you see over and over again in post-Christianity. And it's more and more what I think you're seeing come into American culture as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that that explanation and even that tangible example. And, you know, you mentioned this um, this this practice of, of adapting to a, a post-Christian context. So what would you, before we get into um, what that's looked like for you, what, what you've learned and, and maybe even how you've been been coaching folks based on, on what you've learned, what would you say to, to somebody who, who might push back and say, well, the church isn't meant to um, respond based on what the culture or the world around us is is doing. The church is just supposed to be the church and, and respond to Christ. What would you say to someone who might have that that initial knee-jerk reaction? Yeah, I would say that um, that kind of doesn't necessarily take into account um, the, the, the home field advantage that, that the church has had in Christendom. Mm-hmm. Um, that currently, in, in the last let's say 150 years, 200 years in the American story, the church has actually been much more centered than maybe we think about it. Um, Founding fathers, constitutional documents, um, you know, uh, pledge of allegiance. There are all sorts of elements that are part of America that are very much um, connected to a, a divine worldview, a worldview where there is one God, uh, and, and often, in many ways, a Judeo-Christian worldview where the ethics of the Bible, the ethics of Jesus, the morality of justice and love and grace and truth, where all of that is implied. Uh, and so in many ways, the church got to exist with the benefit of a culture that was flowing in the same direction. And so because of that, we didn't really have to think much about um, the environment around us. And if anything, what we observed were the ways in which culture didn't add to the church. And so we looked at um, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and said, oh, look, the ethics of the culture are against biblical ethics. And so Mm -hmm. in a way, the the world is now against us. Or we looked at any sort of, uh, you know, number of uh, sociopolitical issues where we felt like they weren't reflecting the truths of God's word. And we said culture is kind of against us. And we actually tried to be a prophetic critique against that. And so I think churches have been aware of a cultural shift for many years and have wrestled with how do you engage it? Is it a culture war approach where we fight against Mm. it? Or is it more of a, a, an incarnational approach where we, we enter into that culture and try to offer something different to it. Um, That was the the, the kind of, I think the, the attempt of Jesus to enter into a sinful world and model the way of God, the way of holiness right in the midst of that sinful world and to show a, a better way to be human. So if, if you say that, hey, we shouldn't be impacted by culture, I'd say it's impossible not to. It's just impossible <laughs> yes. not to. Culture is is your language. It's the artifacts around mm-hmm. you, right? It's mm-hmm. it's everything that um, is part of who you are. And, and Jesus embraced culture. I mean, when John says that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, mm-hmm. part of humanity's culture is flesh, its body, its its permanence of one place at one time. That's not how Jesus had existed before then, but he was willing to embrace the culture of humanity. He, he ate, he slept, he went to the bathroom, you know, all these sorts of things. He was a baby who matured. He took on the culture of humanity. And I think for us, it's important to be aware of the cultural realities around us in part so that we can offer something better and different. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you for sharing sharing that. And you know, let's let's dive dive into that then. How would you suggest the the church thinks about um, adapting in a in a post Christian context? What does that what does that look like? And what has it looked like maybe in your own experience? Yeah, I think the um, the one of the phrases that um, that I kind of think about is a is a an anchor point is that the church needs to look less like Christianity and more like Jesus, mm-hmm. meaning that Christianity as a um, as an as a worldview as a a culture has taken on an expression in America that is honestly very influenced by uh, a lot of kind of Western values and influenced by a lot of uh, secular cultural values and not necessarily connected to, to Jesus. So how do we take our modern expressions of faith and kind of renew them or realign them around Jesus? One of my friends, Alan Hirsch, uses the, the, the word he made up, re-Jesus, right? It's kind of like a thing of if repentance is rethinking, re-Jesusing mm-hmm. is just taking anything in our life and going, how do we make it look more like Jesus? Um, mm. I think that one of the first calls on a, on a disciple is to recognize that there's going to be a need for a more robust form of discipleship, a, a re-Jesusing of everything in our life, uh, of really bringing everything back to the centrality of who Jesus is and how he expressed himself in the world. Um, and so some of that may involve a, a, a diving back into scripture to study Jesus. Um, mm. You and I were talking uh, earlier about this notion of uh, the the character of Christ and the competencies of Christ. A lot of times when we think about Jesus, we think about his character. He was mm-hmm. loving and kind and forgiving and compassionate. And, and almost as if those are, we think of those as like fruits of the spirit that come as an expression of the spirit within us. But there were also competencies of Jesus, meaning there were right. like functions and roles that he played in society that I think are important for us to reclaim as modern day disciples. And I think one of the best ways to think of those competencies is around the Ephesians 4 list of, of APES gifts, the, the, the role or the gift of the apostle, the prophet, uh, the evangelist, the shepherd, and the teacher. If you look at the, the ministry of Jesus, you can see that he's often performing one of these five functions, the, the mm-hmm. teaching function where he's pointing people to the, the truth of scripture, where he's uh, anchoring his life and their life in God's word, the, the shepherding function where he's healing or restoring or reconciling, where he's caring for the soul and the the spirit of the person. The evangelist gift, where he's telling the story of God as a storyteller, and then he's kind of making the circle wider, inviting Mm -hmm. people in on the fringes, the Samaritan, the leper, the tax collector. He's saying as an evangelist, there's room for you in God's story. Uh, The prophet, right? And he's flipping over tables at one moment. He's saying, you have heard it said, but... I say to you, I mean, that's the voice of a prophet who's offering a critique of culture and trying to call us to a higher standard. He's saying the way you treat the poor and the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, it's not right, Pharisees. You're more concerned with your own status than you are those on the margins. That's that's not God's heart. That's the call of the prophet. And then finally, this apostolicness, which is the the pioneering part, the the entrepreneurial side of Jesus that goes into Samaria, that that enters into spaces that others would not have gone into, that crosses a boundary into a tax collector's house even. So these kind of five functions are part of the day-to-day life of Jesus, 
that are needed in the modern day church, if we're going to be a healthy church in post-Christian culture, most churches in Christendom really were just shepherd teacher churches, right? Mm-hmm. We, we did a lot of care, small groups, community groups, fellowship lunch, potlucks. We potlucked the heck out of everybody, you know, every weekend, let's sit around and get to know each other and shepherd each other. Mm-hmm. And then teaching. So a, a pastor on a Sunday morning, a a Beth Moore Bible study on Wednesday, uh, another Bible study on Tuesday, a men's breakfast on Friday. That was, there was a lot of teaching and a lot of shepherding. But I think those other gifts, the ape gifts, are the gifts that we really need to reclaim in order to kind of become a more fruitful and faithful church in this post-Christian culture. Mm. Yeah, and I love that you mentioned that, and it makes me think about in in GCI, I don't know how much you're familiar with this, but we use a tool called the Five Voices that I think actually maps um, really well, or not maybe maps, but connects really well to the the APES giftings too. They're pioneer, um, creative, connector, nurturer, and guardian. And so just thinking about what are the roles, what are the functions, and are we, um, are we one, leaning into what, <laughs> you know, how we've been gifted and yeah. are we being thoughtful about in GCI where we're um, really um, big on team-based ministry. And so are we really thoughtful about, like you, like you said, are we having well-rounded teams? Are we making space at the table for everyone to fully reflect these Christ competencies and not only the, maybe the characteristics that, that we've thought about, but is there space at the table for all of these different kinds of voices and giftings so that we can be the, the best expression, the healthiest expression of who Christ is in our context. So I love that. Yeah. You know, it's someone once said, you know, that God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. And and I think that's true with, with (laughs) Jesus you know, we're like, you know, Jesus created us in, in his image, but then we often create Jesus back into our image and, and really our personal image. So Jesus is a lot like me. So if mm-hmm. I'm gifted in this way, that's what Jesus would have done. If I'm not gifted in this way, I tend not to think of Jesus that way, you know? And mm-hmm. so for the, um, for the, for the shepherd, you know, the image of Jesus is him holding the, the you know, the, the sheep over his neck or the, or him holding, uh, someone who's crying and tendering, nurturing them. We don't think of Jesus necessarily as the prophet kicking over a table, right? I mean, like, that's not the painting you put over your kid's bed, you know, is, <laughs> hey, you know, here's Jesus, you know, with a whip flip, flipping tables. But that's just as much Jesus as Jesus yeah. who's holding that tender sheep, you know. Um, but we've mm-hmm. kind of made him in the image of shepherd and teaching. And part of the reason we've done that is because in the culture of Christendom, you didn't need those pioneering breakout gifts because mm. the culture was primarily Christian. So really the church became more of a chaplain for society where people uh, were willing yeah. to, to center the church and to, to come to the church. And so your job was just to, to shepherd them and teach them. But now that we're on the margins and the fringes again of society, those, those breakthrough gifts, the, the apostolic pioneering gift, the evangelistic, make the circle wider gift, the prophetic mm-hmm. kind of raise the standard gift, those gifts are much more needed. And so, yeah, Dyshawn Mills and I went through that five voices together. And mm-hmm. I remember getting my results and being like, yep, that's who I am. And that's who Jesus is to me. <laughs> and I was like, it was a good <laughs> reminder that there are yeah. parts of Jesus that I need to celebrate and find mm-hmm. others in my life when I work on teams that can elevate that voice of Jesus in our team so that I don't just keep 
you know, representing the, the one or two gifts that are mine, thinking that they're actually all of who Jesus is. Mm. Yes, yes. And I, I really appreciate that point that you just made, too, about um, the the context that we may find ourselves in, if we find ourselves in a context where maybe the church is, is more on the margins of society, that may impact um, which which gifts or which voices we we may need to to look to or or create space uh, maybe even a little bit more space at, at the table for and even to to translate that a little bit into the to the five voices those ape um giftings kind of connect really well to the pioneer creative and and connector voices but it makes sense that you say that because if if we're in a, a very um christendom kind of society we're comfortable Right. Yeah. So we don't need to be thinking innovatively. We don't need to be thinking about, you know, what are different ways to, to do things? Um, how might we need to be thinking about how to get to the future? Um, but if if we're we're thinking about a, a existing in a context that's moving towards post-Christian or maybe it's already there, maybe we do have to be um, a little bit more creative in how we're responding to what God's doing in our in our midst. Yeah, I mean, you know, just from a, a, a business, just from an analogy, a parable point of view, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about, you know, the large behemoth business that's been around for 50 years and, and you know, has dominated market share forever, there's a reputation, uh, um, you know, kind of a notion that they can get kind of fat and happy, right? That everyone came to us, everyone bought our products. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about innovation. We're just over here counting our money because we're essential. And then mm-hmm. one day a small scrappy startup comes along <laughs> and finds yeah. a way to kind of break into society. Well, the church has mm-hmm. operated like that big box behemoth organization that had all the power yeah. for a long time. And as we lose our place in society, we really need to embrace more of the mentality of a, of a small, scrappy startup that is mm. trying to innovate and adapt and, and offer uh, products in the marketplace, so to speak, to, to offer good news, to present value and blessing in the world uh, in new and innovative ways, maybe even ways that people aren't, aren't looking for, aren't aware that they yes. need. You know, um, and so that's a whole different skill set, right? I mean, in business school, mm-hmm. you teach entrepreneurs one set of skills and you teach upper level management of existing organizations a very different set of skills. And so uh, this is part of the challenge, I think, for most pastors is that we were trained and hired and brought on to established successful churches and told to manage well. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we find ourselves now needing the skill set of the, the, the scrappy entrepreneurial. You know, um, and that's, <laughs> that's one thing right. if you're 20 and you're like, oh, yeah, I want to be that entrepreneurial scrappy church planner. That's another thing if you're 60 and you're like, man, I actually kind of liked my job. And, you know, how come it's not as fun anymore? How come it's harder? How mm-hmm. come, you know, my people are leaving? Um, yeah. And so that's a little bit of the tension that I find when I work with, you know, young pastors and old pastors is is there's a very different mentality of uh, of willingness to actually embrace how much change is happening. 
Yeah, absolutely. And even I, you know, you mentioned earlier the idea of of the early church in Acts. And that's I, I kind of even see that as that that scrappy, kind of startup-y kind of kind of church. And so can you can you talk with us a little bit about what what that that looks like because it, it is a, a bit of a different skill set. So how do you um, how do you help pastors, leaders, churches, denominations think about this different kind of skill set that's a little bit more of the scrappy startup kind of church. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your comment about Acts reminded me of um, another kind of biblical example of the scrappy startup versus the established church, which is uh, in Matthew 3, when John the Baptist is, you know, out in the wilderness wearing yes. camels, you know, fur and, and eating crazy bugs and honey and um, and he's out there and people are coming to him and he's basically saying the kingdom of God is coming, meaning God is about to do a new thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Pharisees and Sadducees come out to him. And of course, they represent the establishment, right? They're the CEOs of the big box religious company who doesn't want to change. They have nothing to gain by giving up their status. And the, the young, scrappy startup looks at them and says, man, the axe has already been laid at the, the root of your tree. And if you don't repent, mm-hmm. if you don't rethink, if you don't change and innovate, God's going to cut your tree down. And I love mm-hmm. what he says to them is, and I know what you'll say to me. You'll say, we have Abraham as our father. Meaning, he, John the Baptist anticipates that your argument for why God can't cut you down is going to be rooted in history. It's going to be mm-hmm. like, hey, we're descendants of Abraham. We're, we have a straight line from Abraham. It's, it's the same thing as a modern day guy saying, well, you know, I said, if I came in and said, you got to do things differently. And he said, we've always done it this way. We've, we, <laughs> it always works, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and John the Baptist is saying, listen, when it comes to God's kingdom, what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. God's going to do something totally different. And your choice is to either repent and get on board or to realize that God is going to cut down your tree. It's the same thing he says in Revelation to all the different churches, you know, ultimately you need to repent and rethink or else God's going to snuff out your lamp, you know? And for all of those churches, there's a promise that if you do repent, if you do rethink, if you do embrace this innovative challenge, there is a blessing to come on the other side, you know? So mm-hmm. to, to get to your, your question, I think the, the main paradigm that I try to encourage, you know, leaders to think through is that in Christendom, uh, the, the primary way we made disciples was through three, you know, gears in the engine, so to speak. We used uh, professionals, property, mm-hmm. and programs. So we built mm-hmm. a building, we hired a staff person, we organized a program, and we believed that the community would come to us. And if we could just get them into our door and get them in a seat to listen to our pastor and then sign them up for a, a program, you know, they would become a fully formed follower of Jesus. They become a disciple. The problem is in post-Christianity, people don't go to church. They don't see the church as good news, right? There's a generation growing up that thinks the church is judgmental and bigoted and, and hateful and, and narrow-minded. And, whatever, and, and they're never going to walk through the door of a church because it's not their culture. And yeah. so if they're not walking into the doors of your church, they're they're never going to meet your professionals. They're never going to join your programs. So how do you make a disciple? 
Well, in post-Christianity, you have to think about every existing disciple becoming a disciple maker themselves. And so rather than property, professionals, and programs, you put all of your stock, all of your energy into making disciple-making people, to forming Mm -hmm. someone who can make a disciple on their own out in the ordinary spaces of life. Everyday people in the ordinary spaces of life. That's a phrase that I keep coming back to. So what are you doing this week within your church to equip and train, you know, that ordinary person to be able to go out as a mom or a mechanic, you know, as a a carpenter or CEO, whatever their profession is, and to be able to make disciples in the places where they live, work and and play or create. Uh, If you're not doing that, then you're structured for obsolescence. And it's just kind of a matter of time, you know, before someone has to close the doors on your property. Um, And, you know, I say to people, hear me now, believe me later, but I'm just telling you, I've been to the future. I've seen it. We invited, we invited people to church for 18 months in Brussels and not a single post-Christian European person ever said yes. Mm. And that's when I realized, man, I need a new strategy because if they're not coming to church, I don't know how to, you know, introduce them to Jesus in a, in a, in a strategic way. I'm going to have to change how I go about this. I'm going to actually have to figure out a way to be the church where they are rather Mm -hmm. than trying to get them to come to where we do church, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's two thoughts that that comes to mind with what you said. The first with this, this idea of God is doing a new thing and are we going to repent and participate in that? It's, it's really, are, are we about what God is doing? Are we about what's comfortable for us and what, what we like to be doing? Right. And I think that that's a question for us to contend with because if God is doing a new thing, if he is working in in a new way, um, are, are we going to say yes and amen, you know, or are we going to say, God, we've always done it this way. So sorry. That's how we end up wandering yeah. in the desert for 40 years. That's right. So there's, there's that, that, that came to, to mind. And, and, um, you know, my, my prayer is always that we would be the yes and amen people that, mm. that would follow God into the new thing. And the other thing that, that comes to mind for me in, in what you're saying is um, this idea of not just having folks come to us at, in, in our space as, as the, the gathering church, but bringing the church out into the world is that's incarnation, right? That's Absolutely. being yeah. incarnational. And um, really that's, that's participating in how Christ was for us and with us and continues to be with us. And, and to me, I, I think, you know, uh, I see that as, as something that's, um, you know, important in adapting to a post-Christian world. And it's also a way of faithfulness in, in maybe contexts that aren't quite post-Christian yet, or maybe won't be mm. post-Christian for a while because this idea of, of incarnation, of, of living with the people, amongst the people, living real lives and not just holding up in the four walls of the church is just so compelling because it's so, it's so Christ-like. So even, um, you know, theologically with orthodoxy, orthopraxy, there's something so compelling about what you're describing in terms of how to think about being the church. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up, uh, my parents were Methodist pastors in Northeast, and I grew up, you know, a good Sunday school kid and BBS, you know, <laughs> all, all the, anytime there was a, a, a program for kids, I was at it. And, you know, probably mm-hmm. like you, I remember, the, you know, the little nursery rhyme we learned that was, 
you know, this is the church, this is the steeple, <laughs> open the doors and see all the people, you know, and, and the reveal of the people was so fun. Everyone kind of did this, you know, and yeah. it wasn't until I was probably in my like 30s where I realized this is horrible ecclesiology. This is the church? No, 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 no. This is the church. Yes. You know, but, but we had literally created a nursery rhyme that was indoctrinating kids into mm-hmm. thinking that the church was a building. That it was a structure, yeah. that that the form of church as a box building with a steeple on it, that this was essential to be the church. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not out of the book of Acts. That's not New Testament. That's just cult, <laughs> that's cultural. So right. if you go back to the church being this, the, the reveal of the people and say, how do we equip the church to then go into the world and incarnate the way of Jesus outside of the yeah. walls? It's a it's a totally different kind of skill set and mentality, um, but you can see even like in a simple you know ridiculous illustration like that how our brains need to change. Yes, you know, and even the way we raise the next generation needs to change. I mean, I get real frustrated with my kids. You know, I said we don't ever go to church. You know, we are the <laughs> church. So you know, I say we're, we're going to go. The church is gathering on Sunday morning, so you can say we're going to mm-hmm. the gathering. But I used to drive me crazy if the kids would say, "Are we going to church on Sunday?" I'd be like, the church is not a destination. Of course, they're PKs. They'd roll their eyes like, whatever, dad. You know? but, uh, but even on Sunday in our welcome, when I would welcome you know, uh, our community at Ecclesia, I'd say, good morning, church. It's so mm-hmm. great to be gathered today. I know we've been scattered all over Los Angeles and the places that we live, work, and play. We've been participating in God's work out in the world. But there's something beautiful and special about gathering together to celebrate God's work and when we all are together, you know, and, and God shows mm-hmm. up in a special way when his community gathers. So we honor the gathering. We're not getting rid of it, but we also balance that with the value of the scattering, representing that the church are the people who breathe in and breathe out the life of God as we come together and then head out into the world. Yes, yes. That's excellent. What What are some of the other things that you've found in this, this shifting of the way that we think about church and, and discipleship um, that you found is helpful to unlearn. Mm. Yeah, I was, um, you know, one of the things I love about GCI is I've gotten to know you guys and, and some of your key leaders and, and had great discussions about your dreams and, um, mm. you know, the prize that you're seeking after is your willingness to embrace this idea of the journey with Jesus um, being a journey of belonging believing, and then becoming. You know, in, um, in, in most of Christendom, the way churches were structured was actually the, the opposite way, that you would um, come to a church, and if you behaved the way the church behaved, and if you believe the way the church believed, then you could belong to the church body. And mm-hmm. one simple way we did that was through kind of membership classes, right? And so I used to teach membership classes at a church. I'm not opposed to church membership. I mean, um, I don't, wouldn't die on the mountain of having to have it either, you know. But, but the premise was we taught a six-week class where we explained to them uh, what were the behaviors associated with the life of Jesus and the behaviors of a member of our community that we wanted them to ascribe to. And then what were the you know, the nine point statement of belief that we ascribe to. And if they were willing to sign off on our statement of, of faith or statement of belief and uh, adhere to a certain set of behaviors that we saw were core as members, then they could belong to us as members. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the challenge with that is um, it's the exact opposite way that Jesus made disciples. Jesus would encounter someone like uh, Zacchaeus in a tree or Matthew, you know, in his um, tax collector uh, shed or the, the fisherman by the water. And he would never come up and say, hey, guys, can I offer you a nine point statement of faith? And can I give you a list of the, co- the core 10 competencies of the life of God? And will you guys agree to this? And if you will, you can come be my yeah. disciples. No, what he did was he, he led with belonging. He literally came to them and found a way to create a human connection, to say, we belong to each other. Hey, come follow me. You're like mm-hmm. me. You have value. It, it would, as a rabbi, I would like to have you in my presence, so to speak. Mm-hmm. To Matthew, it was like, Matthew, nobody likes you, but I like you. And, and mm-hmm. I would like to be in a relationship with you, you know? Um, and so when you lead with belonging, when you lead with hospitality, with love, with kindness and grace, um, then you have the opportunity to begin to kind of talk more about beliefs and behaviors down the road. But I think most churches haven't really thought about having to lead with belonging um, because the culture wanted to belong to a church. Mm. There was a gravitational pull into the churches. And so if anything, we could build walls and say, now, wait a minute, if you want to belong, you have to believe and behave like us. And people would jump over the hurdle and say, yes, I mm. want to do that. Nobody wants to belong to a church anymore. Post, post-Christian people don't want to be church members, right? So if you try to create a wall, a fence that says, hey, you got to behave and believe what we believe in order to come in, they go, I don't care. I don't, I don't want to be in there anyway, right? So it's a, it's a radical reorientation to say, well, what if we – got outside the fence and created belonging with people. You know, the, the uh, analogy that I use in my book that is, is kind of well-worn, but it might be, um, might be helpful is to think about disciple making in what's called a, a centered set versus a bounded set reality. So mm-hmm. a bounded set reality is uh, one in which community is determined by um, shared practices, shared beliefs, by a, um, a high standard. It's a fraternity, right? You got to pledge it to be mm-hmm. a part of it. It's a country club. You got to pay the price to be a part of it. You have to agree to the standards or they kick you out. Um, in, a, in a bounded set, imagine, you know, a shepherd building a fence out in the middle of a field and putting all of his sheep inside of it. Mm-hmm. Anything inside the fence belongs to him. Anything outside the fence doesn't belong to him. The fence is a way of marking insiders and outsiders. In some ways, marking like the good people and the bad people. Now, centered set disciple making is very different. Centered set is more like a, a shepherd saying, you know, the best way to keep these sheep and to, to help them grow is not to try to fence them in, but it's to dig a well in the middle of the field and to mm-hmm. orient them to the well as a source of water. Hey, sheep, come here. This is where the water is. Now you're free to roam and graze. But anytime you get thirsty, you can come back mm. here. And so imagine, um, you know, us as people of the well, people who know the source of water saying, yeah. rather than trying to fence in people or try to get them in the fence, why don't we wander off and join them where they are and mm-hmm. create shared belonging and then say to that person, by the way, if you're ever looking for the source of, of eternal life, if you're ever looking for the deep answers to the questions I actually know where a well is and I could orient you Mm. there, you know? And so Mm. it it breaks down the idea of insiders and outsiders 
Uh, and it really encourages us to go and think about being sent people who create mutual belonging and acceptance of people wherever they are. Yes. And I love that idea of, of sentness and mm. even that image, that image of, of, of the well to illustrate that centered, that centered set kind of community, I think helps yeah. us to, to visualize what does that, what does that practically look like? Because I think that we have lived in, in a, in a general sense, um, in, in this bounded set kind of kind of community where we are like, well, us versus them. Are you Christian? Are you not? You know, which yeah. church do you belong to yeah. <laughs> versus, yes. you know, are we a sent people as the people of God? And where are we being sent to? How are we being sent? And what does that sentness look like? Yeah, I think that that, that, that is excellent. Yeah. So in that, you know, in that sentence where we're coming up almost to the end of our time. So I have I have one more question for you okay. um, in in this in this episode for today. In that sentence and that idea of what does that sentence look like, you have this idea that you present in your book called disruptive disciple making. And so can you talk a little bit about what what that means? What does that look like um, to be disruptive disciple makers? Yeah, you know, it's based on an idea from uh, Oz Guinness, who uh, wrote in one of his books that the the challenge for the kind of the pre-Christian world, right? The challenge in the book of Acts mm -hmm. is to explain a concept um, about a, the Christ, the Messiah, who was offering salvation through faith, through grace, that was so novel, so new, so radical, um, that people could barely understand it. And so you had to present it in a way that was simple and clear and made sense. Um, and then eventually people began to wrap their mind around it. It was a novel truth. He said the challenge in post-Christianity is actually the opposite, is you're presenting something to people that is so hyper-familiar that they think they already know it, and that in some ways maybe they even already believe it, and they're not interested in hearing any more about it. And so the, the education challenge is when you're teaching something that's complex uh, and brand new, you try to make it simple. But when you're teaching something that is hyper familiar, but not really understood, mm -hmm. you have to make it strange. And so the idea of disruptive disciple making is this concept of strange making. How do you take for a people who have rejected Christendom, who think mm -hmm. they, they know the story of Jesus, but really have not actually understood it or embraced it, right? Maybe they're nominal mm -hmm. Christians who have never really experienced the power of Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the, the incredible calling on our life to be part of the kingdom. Or maybe they're just people who have experienced uh, church friends, but have never themselves mm -hmm. taken the thought of Jesus seriously. How do you make that real to them in a fresh way? How do you make it novel? How do you disrupt their expectations? And uh, the analogy that I always like using is um, you know, who is in an old retirement community in Williamsburg when I used to lead a, a Vesper service at 4 p.m. for um, uh, for a bunch of um, retired officers and, and their wives at this well, men and women at this uh, uh, Patriots colony it was called. Anyway, not important. But the bottom line was every time you drove in past the gate and you're in a small neighborhood, uh, there was a, a speed limit sign on the right hand side. And I remember it said 17 and a half miles per hour. <laughs> And it was the first time I'd ever seen a sign like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing like yep. a double take, like what? 17 and a half. 
And then the next thing, I, I actually went from that sign immediately to my speedometer to see what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. We see speed limit signs all the time. They're hyper familiar to us. And most of the times, we tend to ignore them. We tend to drive at a speed that we think is appropriate and makes us feel mm-hmm. safe and comfortable. And then we hope there's no cops in case we're going too fast, right? So what they did was genius. They took a sign that mm-hmm. was hyper familiar. They took something that they knew we would have the potential to ignore, to think, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah. I've been there. I've done that. I don't need a street sign to tell me the speed. And they made it strange. By putting half at the end of 17, they made us focus on it. And our natural mm-hmm. reaction to something strange then was to actually assess our preconceived notions and check our speed. So I say all that to say what we need to do as modern day Christians is take the expression of Christ mm-hmm. in the culture and make it a little more strange. Mm-hmm. Not in a weird way, like weird Christian <laughs> t-shirts or, you know, but, but to make it remarkable. To make it something that people actually remark on, like, wow, I've never seen that before. I've never experienced mm-hmm. that before. And so, you know, how do you express the life of Jesus in a way that is different from just kind of cultural Christianity? You know, how do you show remarkable acts of grace, remarkable acts of love, remarkable acts of kindness and blessing to people? You know, Michael Frost uses the phrase, how do you surprise the world with the life mm-hmm. of Jesus? You know, and I and I think the only way that you're going to get people to to kind of analyze um, the the truths of Christianity is to get them to think maybe there's more to Christ than I thought. This person mm. is living the life a life that they say is inspired by Jesus, and it's not like anything I've ever seen before. I know yes. what a Christian is, but this person's different. You know, I mm-hmm. think of Christians as judgmental and off to their own and moralistic. But this person embraces and loves me regardless of my behavior. This person wants to be with me even though they know I have things in my life that they don't approve of. There's something remarkable mm-hmm. about that. And if you're willing to take you know, Christ seriously, I think ultimately that's the way that Christianity as a worldview becomes open up to them again in a fresh way. So you know, I, I think there's a lot of stories of how Jesus disrupts people's expectations of what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be in the kingdom? What does it mean to to have power or wealth, and he makes through parables and through his own modeling, he makes all that strange for them. And they walk away kind of mm-hmm. scratching their head going, I thought I understood it. But maybe <laughs> I never had, maybe I never really yeah. did. Maybe there's something new for me to consider here. So that's, that's one of the skills I think of a modern missionary is, is understanding how to um, disrupt the expectation around Christianity and represent something that's more Christ-like than, than modern Christianity. Yes, I I love that. And one of the things that I think um, a challenge that's presented in that almost to um, those of us who who want to live disruptive dis- disciple lives is that we have to be willing to be discipled by Christ to the point where our lives can be disruptive, right? We have to be willing to be the person that someone will double take 
at, right? We have to be willing to be um, someone who might break expectations of what it maybe even means to, to be a Christian, um, whether to somebody who, who has no idea, thinks they had an idea, or someone who's like, this is definitely what it means to, to yeah. be a follower. And so I think what's beautiful about that is it, is it means also not just taking um, the idea of like an effective evangelism strategy seriously, but taking Christ and our, our own transformation and discipleship um, at his feet seriously. Yeah. Cause you can't, I mean, it's, you can't it fake all, that. <laughs> no, it, I mean, it really, that's a great point, Karen. It really begins with a prayer of like, Jesus, disrupt me, disrupt my life, yes. you know, <laughs> turn my world upside down um, and form something in me that becomes disruptive in the world. But you're right. It's not a, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it's not something you can fake, you know, it's not a, um, a silver bullet strategy to make new disciples, so to speak. It's an invitation for the spirit to work deeper in your life so that he can ultimately work through you deeper in the world around you. Yes. Yes. And the faking it is when you get the weird, the weird, weird, like you were talking about and we don't want the weird, weird. Yes. Right. So actually on that note, we're going to wrap up for today's episode for our listeners. Um, if you want to check out our next episode with Dion, we're going to be diving a little bit more deeply into the process of how do we, um, as ministry leaders, ministry participants, dive more deeply into developing um, as community members in this way of participating in mission, in ministry, and being the church with one another. But for now, we are going to be a little bit weird but not weird weird and we're gonna end our episode um in our in our traditional way with a little bit of fun questions so john whatever comes up whatever pops right into your mind um with these mm. next few questions just just go for it it's okay to be a, a little bit weird so you got it. if you're All up right. for it and you're ready here we go what is a useless piece of knowledge that you really love oh my goodness a useless piece of knowledge. Um, the first woman to ever dunk in a college basketball game went to West Virginia University. All right. Go her. Uh, it's, it's just, <laughs> I don't know why I know it, but I know it. You know? Yeah. Things you can't get is. out of your head. That is, that is absolutely useless. But it's great. It's great. Yeah. All right. Here's the next one. If you could only listen to one genre of music for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, Bob Dylan. Just as a solo oh, artist easy. genre. Even okay. last night, I was driving home. There's nothing greater than nighttime driving with the windows down and Bob Dylan playing because he's the only artist that you know you can probably sing better than. So you just go at the top of your lungs. <laughs> you know? That was too easy for you. Okay, okay. Um, what is a major bucket list item for you that you've yet to check off? Mm. I've always wanted to um, kind of see the Northern Lights. I've always wanted to go up to Scandinavia. Mm. It's probably the only part of Europe that we didn't get to explore um, and take one of those kind of winter trips where it's you know dark almost year round and experience 24 yeah. hours of darkness. But then the winter, I mean, the Northern Lights, the big green, I just think it's one of the God's coolest kind of artistic paintings that he created um, in, in creation that I'd love to go see. Yes. Oh, well, I hope that happens for you. Uh, what is your favorite book of all time? If you had to choose just one. You can't say the Bible. You can't say the Bible. <sighs> That's right. No, um, <laughs> uh, 
one of my, my favorite book, I think is by Lauren Hildebrand. It's called, um, I think it's called Unbroken. And it's the story mm. of um, Ernie, I think his name's Ernie Zamperini, who's this, they turned it into a film. The film wasn't great, but it's just an incredible story of a, uh, mm. a World War II um, pilot who gets shot down and becomes a prisoner of war. And then, uh, and before that he was an Olympic sprinter and then he comes back to the States and he ends up becoming a follower of Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade. I mean, it's just, it's one of these stories that is like almost too good to be true, but it's true. It's, it's a biography of his life and he has five different lives that each on their own would be remarkable. Um, wow. and I just, yeah, she wrote Seabiscuit as well. And she's one of my favorite writers to just kind of tell these compelling stories from real life. Wow. That's excellent. All right. Last one. You got to give it all you've got. What is your best joke? Oh gosh! My, I get my fourteen-year-old son out here. He's the the joke. All right, my my favorite joke was partly your favorite because my kids could never tell it right. Which was uh, knock knock. Who's there? Uh, knock knock. Who's there? Banana. Knock knock. Who's there? Banana. Knock knock. Who's there? Banana. Knock knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange. Who? Orange. You glad I didn't say banana. <laughs> and so it took my kids probably you know six months after learning why that joke was funny to be able to tell it right i kept screwing it up and so it became a great <laughs> and so i remember there was a, a, a t-shirt website one time we saw and it was a picture of a door with three bananas lined up and an orange in the back and they were all lined up the door and we bought that and our kids wore that thing into the ground. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for your time and joining us today on Juicy Podcast. Uh, listeners, go on ahead and check out his book, Positively Irritating, to dive in a little bit deeper uh, with some of the stuff that we talked today, talked about today. And it is our practice to end each episode with a word of prayer. So, John, would you mind um, going ahead and praying for our churches, past ministry leaders, um, and church gathering participants today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this tribe of GCI and the uh, incredible rich uh, history, the prophetic history of this these people, the way that they have um, broken free uh, from uh, mm-hmm. slavery and, and uh, of an, uh, an idolatry um, the way that they have renewed, repented, re-Jesused um, themselves. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, encouragement for those around the world who are thinking themselves about ways to become more faithful and more fruitful as a mm-hmm. church. I thank you for the story that you've written uh, through this denomination and through these people of the last 25 years. I pray for uh, the individual pastor, for the, uh, the local teams, for the, the denominational heads, for even the, those pastoring around the globe, Father, that you would be equipping them uh, with the, the courage and um, the discernment, the insight, Lord, to, to follow you in this new way of being uh, in the world. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would give us all the courage as your leaders to be willing to do a new thing, to join you in the new work you're doing. Um, we, we thank you that you have not left us um, out on the outside and, and that you're always inviting us to be part of the new work, Father. You don't scrap the old in order to do something new. You invite the existing to repent and renew and join your fresh work in the world. And so I pray, Father, for that sort of lens that we might embrace your work. And I pray that your spirit would fill us afresh. And I pray for all these leaders, God, listening today, even that you would encourage them to fight the good fight and to press on 
in the midst of the incredible adversity of being a leader in a local context. We pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. 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 Well, friends, until next time, keep on living and sharing the gospel. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of the GC Podcast. We hope you have found value in it to become a healthier leader. We would love to hear from you. If you have a suggestion on a topic or if there is someone who you think we should interview, email us at info at gci.org. Remember, healthy churches start with healthy leaders. Invest in yourself and your leaders.